Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. All right, welcome back to our study of Romans. We uh, just have a few weeks left, and in this last uh, section, this last portion, our last three gatherings, we get to talk about um, what does it mean to live some of these things out. So I'm very much looking forward to our conversations. Um, tonight, is, is um, we're going to cover a decent chunk, and it's kind of uh, scattered, a lot of different things, but we'll talk about how it unifies. Then next week, it's about the same amount of material, but it's pretty focused, um, and we're kind of going to revolve around one thing, and then we'll wrap up with some thoughts on the last portions of the letter. So let's pray, and then jump into chapter 12. Father God, thanks for the opportunity for us together again here tonight. We just are always grateful and never want to take for granted the chance to be in a place like this where we can just gather around your word and submit ourselves to it. We thank you for the different ways that you've um, led and guided and gifted and wired us so that we can be a blessing to each other in various ways. And in this particular setting, in this particular experience we're sharing, we're thankful for Romans. Thank you for the opportunity to teach it. Pray that you would make us all students and help us to listen well to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, as I, as I prayed through that, it reminded me of something that we talked about quite a bit in the first few weeks, um, but I haven't really made uh, a big point of lately, so let me draw our attention back to it now, and that is, remember, what we're doing when we study the text is uh, we're not only just trying to sort of figure out what is true in a general sense, but we want the text to guide our listening we have an interactive relationship with God, and we don't always know what that means, and it's kind of a weird thing. It's certainly not exactly like any other relationship, but part of this relationship is that God communicates to us. He speaks uh, in his own ways, and when we listen, and when we study the scriptures, part of what we're doing is we're trying to train our minds to be able to recognize when something is, is God speaking to us and when it may just be a reflection of our own voices. And so as we talk through um, these next few sections, let's be mindful of that. Uh, I think a lot of us, I think all of us at certain points want to know what is God's will for my life? What does it mean to walk with Jesus? How do I live my faith? All these different phrases we use, what does that look like? And um, we all live very specific lives and the Holy Spirit is our guide and teacher in applying the biblical truth to our specific lives, but we will be able to hear the Spirit better when we understand the, the big picture of what God wants for us. So uh, we are moving into our fourth and final section of the book of Romans, and so let's just review what the big picture is all about. Uh, in chapters 1 through 4 is the first section, and what is Paul doing in this section, chapters 1 through 4? He, yeah, Paul explains, he's explaining, and what is he explaining? The gospel. He's talking about what the gospel is and how it works, and he's, he's saying, basically, whether you're Jew or Gentile, and that is, everyone is saved the same way, by grace, through faith in Jesus, and this is what God planned all along. So he's explaining the gospel, and then we looked at chapters 5 through 8, which is where Paul just kind of digs deeper, and what is he doing in this section? He explores, yeah, he explores what? Salvation, Exactly. So we're not talking about something different than what he talks about in the first four chapters. He just is digging a little deeper into all of what it means. So we're saved by grace through faith. We're justified by grace through faith. What does it mean for us? And so we looked at some of the different things Paul talked about as he explored salvation, as he explored all of what is available to us in Christ, all of the things that, that, that are our reality and that can become our experienced reality as we live into them. And then last week, we looked again at this main... Uh, this third section, chapters 9 through 11, and what is Paul doing in this section? 
Answers, yeah, Paul, answers an objection. The objection is, well, what about the fact that the Jews currently, at least a lot of them, don't believe? And um, what this section reminds us of is that all along, we haven't just been talking about, you know, how you and I can get saved and what that means for us as individuals. We have been talking about that, but we haven't just been talking about that. Um, This section right here reminds us that all throughout this, a part of what Paul's been doing consistently is defending God's righteousness. We don't want to forget that. That is the theme of this book stated at the beginning. We haven't moved on from that. So Paul in all of this is defending God's righteousness. And we remember that um, God's righteousness really encompasses two primary ideas, his integrity as judge and his faithfulness to, the, to his promises, faithfulness to his covenant promises. All of that is in, in, in encompassed in this idea of God's righteousness. And so when Paul explains the gospel, he doesn't just say you're saved by grace through faith. He says you're saved by grace through faith just like God always said was going to be the plan, just like God always promised. This is why we spend so much time in chapter four talking about Abraham. He's not just an example of the gospel, but he is actually the beginning of God's covenant. So we go back to Abraham to say, listen, this was in play from the start. God hasn't changed the game on anybody. Then in his second section, as we unpack what's available to us, there's a sense in which it's just immediately applicable. You have peace with God through grace. You have um, freedom from death. You have freedom from sin. You are free from the law. You have hope and, and love and all these things. And at the same time, This is still defending God's righteousness because God always planned when he made Adam and promised when he called out Abraham that there would be a people who would experience life as he intended, who would experience his blessing. And so when we experience these blessings, we actually become living proof that God keeps his promises, living proof that God accomplishes his purposes. And then this took center stage again in 9 through 11 Um, where Paul deals with this objection, this gospel is so great, there's no separation from God's love in Christ Jesus except for the fact that most of the Jews don't believe. What now? And Paul took us through um, a a pretty consistent defense of, no, this really was the plan all along. We were always always worked like this by grace, uh, by God's mercy. It was always designed to get us to Jesus. And now that it got got us to Jesus, it's still going to keep working. All people, Jews and Gentiles, are going to keep getting saved through Jesus so that in the end, all of those, whether Jew or Gentile, all of those who belong to the people of God will indeed experience salvation. So now we move on to the, the fourth and final section, chapters 12 through 16. And in this section, what Paul is doing is Paul's instructing. Paul instructs the church. And if you want me to expand it a little bit, Paul instructs the church on how to be the church. That's kind of what he's talking about. Here's how to be the people of God. Here's how to live out what we've been talking about. Here's how to put this into action. And so as we frame uh, 12 through 16, this last quarter of the book that we're going to be examining, we want to keep two things in mind. First of all, we really, Paul really is finally turning his attention to the practical stuff, to the practical outworkings of the gospel. Here's what this means for people's lives uh, together as followers of Jesus. Here's how this plays out uh, in your relationships with other Christians. Here's how this plays out in your relationships with those on the outside, in your relationship with those even who may not like you, who may attack you. Here's, Here's what this looks like. So we're doing the practical outworking stuff. But even as we do this, don't lose sight of this larger purpose of defending God's righteousness. Because as we live out 
this vision of life in Christ. As we live out this, this lifestyle made possible by the gospel, we are continually living proof that God has accomplished what he started. And we'll look at some specific portions of our text that actually draw our attention to precisely that. So tonight we're looking at 12.1 through 13.14. Basically we're looking at chapters 12 and 13 of, uh, of the book of Romans. And so let's turn our Bibles uh, there and open up and um, look at what we see. And basically we're going to divide this out into two halves. Now they're totally not balanced. One half is like two verses and the other half is the rest of the two chapters. Um, but nevertheless, I do think that you have these divided into two basic ideas. And it takes us back to what Jesus said of the two most important commandments. Love God, love people. Now, Paul will use a bunch of different language, but I think he starts by talking about our relationship before God, our life before God, and then he builds on that, just as Jesus did, and says, and here's what this looks like in love for people. And that's where he really gives us a lot of detailed information on how to go about this process. So I heard, um, I used to, we used to have a pastor who would describe it as, uh, he, he would bring a golf club up on stage and he would talk about his golf swing. And don't make fun of me, I have no idea how to really swing a golf club, but everybody knows when you swing a golf club, there's two parts to it. There's the back swing. And then, you know, you, where you swing it backwards, and then there's the actual swing where you hit the ball. Now, if you just backswing and just hang out there, it's not going to work out for you very well, right? You have to actually, like, swing and follow through. But on the other hand, if you don't backswing and you just try to, like, start from here and hit it, <laughs> you might be strong and it might go a decent bit, but it's not going to go as far as it's supposed to. You got to have both halves. Similarly, that's how it works with love God, love people. If, if, you, if you say you love God, but you don't love people, then we should probably question whether or not we really do love God, whether we've really come to love him and see him rightly. But on the other hand, if we say it's just about loving people, but you don't worry about loving God first, then there's not going to be very much power in it. It's just going to be essentially all you, can, all you can muster with your own strength. So we really have to start with the foundation of having a right relationship, an active relationship with God, and then, and then, it, and then it will play out in our love for people. So let's look at what Paul says. First of all, the, the love God section, just a couple of verses. Um, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Um, let's, uh, let's read what Paul says. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. There you have, in a pretty simple fashion, Paul's description of kind of the foundation of living with God. Now, before we unpack this, let's look at and remind ourselves real briefly of what Paul has said already about how to live out the gospel. I'm thinking specifically of his comments back in the middle of chapter 6. After he talked about, in our baptism, we've been, we've been we've died with Jesus, we've been raised again with Jesus. Then he kind of gave us a little bit of a preview of his practical instructions. I don't know if you remember what he said, but he said, count yourself, calculate yourself alive to God and dead to sin, and then offer the parts of your body or consecrate the parts of your body as instruments for righteousness. And so we, did, we had this very basic two-step process, calculate and consecrate. Calculate is just think about what is now true of you. Do the math. In the same way that we, we use the example of, you know, what's three plus five, or three times five, 15. How can we be sure? Well, I guess you could go right five, 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 add them up, it's 15. Do the math, calculate it. And then what we calculate is, I actually am free 
from sin. In this moment, I actually don't have to do this wrong thing. I actually can respond to this person with gentleness rather than anger. I actually can forgive rather than hold on to bitterness. I actually can worship rather than sit here and complain. We have that ability now. So we first of all calculate what is true about us. We just think about the gospel and all of what Paul has said. We think about salvation and what's true and available to us. And then we consecrate, he said. We offer the parts of our body as instruments for righteousness, as instruments for holiness. In the same way that in the past, we kind of offered the different parts of our body as instruments for sin, now we do the same thing, but in the proper direction. Now, Paul is going to kind of here expand on that basic formula. And I have to tell you, one of the things I love about Paul is he doesn't get real fancy when it comes to living it out. It's kind of simple. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's not all that complex. It's, it's not, all, not necessarily the easiest thing in the world to do. But what I don't think you should think is there's some silver bullet magic formula that if you could just figure it out, then you would understand discipleship. Then you would be able to know what life with God is like. No, it's actually kind of available to all of us. It's going to take some discipline, but it's not too complex. So building on this simple calculate and consecrate, let's look and see how Paul Um, develops his thinking here in this passage. So he expands on the basic formula. First of all, he says, considering God's mercies. And mercies is plural there. That's why I put mercies here, not just mercy. I don't know about your translation. Mine says, in view of God's mercy. That's fine. But literally it says mercies. And if you remember, or if you read chapters 9 through 11, the word mercy is all over the place. So when Paul says, considering God's mercies, he's referring back specifically and immediately to what Paul said in 9 through 11, that God has made a way for everybody, Jew and Gentile, to be saved. Even though all of us rejected him, all of us have an open invitation to put our faith in the Son and therefore experience uh, peace with God, experience reconciliation, experience salvation. God has locked us all over into disobedience so that he might have mercy on us all. So we're all corrupt and all messed up, but mercy is there for everyone. So we first consider God's mercies. So again, it it, it immediately recalls 9 through 11, but I actually also think this is very much 1 through 11. I mean, the whole thing, everything we've talked about. I think Paul summarizes the entirety of Romans 1 through 11 in this word mercies. Think about that word mercy. What it means is that you, you, you take pity on someone in need and you help them. It has both of those pieces. Like you feel for them and therefore you help them. So you don't just feel for them and that's it. No, you feel for them and then you help them. But you also don't just sort of help them with a cold look on your face. No, it's I, I, I have pity for you in your situation. Even if you yourself, got, if you got yourself in this mess right now, I just feel for you and I'm going to do what I can to help you out. That's what it means. Helping those that are in need and, and don't really deserve it. So as always, as always, every time, Paul always, before he calls us to do anything, he reminds us that the first step is to receive what God has done for us. He will never tire of making sure that even as he calls us to full-on obedience, to full-on a life of worship, he always begins by saying, just so you remember, like this starts by realizing God has been good to you. 
This is never this, I got to get up and I guess guess it's all on me again today. No, you wake up every, think about the psalm, his mercies are new every morning. You wake up every single day with the same awesome reality that God has acted to deliver you from the mess that you got yourself in, to deliver us from the mess that we've gotten ourselves in. He he wants us to make sure and get this in view of God's mercies. This This is, I think, the calculating part, although he uses different words. In view of God's mercies, on account of God's mercies, considering God's mercies, Consecrate yourselves as an act of worship. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Consecrate yourselves as an act of worship. Now, we're basically talking about obedience. No need to be fancy. We're basically talking about doing the right thing. And much like Paul has said before, we're we're to offer the parts of us, the different parts of our bodies that still kind of stink of rebellion, the the parts of our bodies that are kind of the, the battle zone between the flesh and the spirit. The parts of our bodies, the concrete realities of our daily life. This is not fancy stuff like your actual life and the actual opportunities that you have to do things with your feet and your hands and your eyes and your mouth, like your bodies. So Paul says, consecrate your bodies. And again, I consistently appreciate the concreteness for Paul here. Sin begins with a temptation to use some portion of what God has given us in a way that is dishonoring to him or to do nothing instead of using what God has given us in order to benefit others. There are sins of doing the wrong thing and there are sins of not doing the right thing. So maybe it's not so much, you know, I I spoke meanly in this situation, but it was, I kind of knew that an encouraging word was needed and I didn't say it. Or I kind of knew that a word of correction was needed and I didn't say it. I kind of knew that I should have let my feet take me over there and help that person, but I didn't do it. I stayed where I was because I was afraid or selfish or busy or whatever. So Paul's very concrete about this. The ways in which we do the wrong thing or avoid doing the right thing with our bodies, he says, no, take those same parts of your body and offer those. So we're talking about doing the right thing with these power packs that we've been given, but we're seeing it as worship. We're talking about obedience, nothing fancy, but we're seeing it as worship because that's what it is, an act of worship, not just singing songs. This is one of those places where we see that in the Bible, worship includes the singing of songs, but it goes way beyond it. We're talking about worship in the big picture. It's all of life. It's doing everything for the glory of God. So here he says to offer or consecrate, same word. That's why he keeps using the word consecrate. And the word comes from the language of sacrifices. So picture in the Old Testament uh, or in any of a lot of ancient societies, even in Paul's day in some contexts, you know, you have like maybe, maybe you know, 40, cow, 40 cattle or 40 sheep or whatever. And then and there's this one that is, is perfect. There's this one that's going to be set apart for a sacrifice. You consecrate that animal and you offer it as a sacrifice. You set it apart from the others and you say, this is to be devoted to you. So the family or the individual or the community would say, this animal is set apart for the specific purpose of being sacrificed to God so that we can express our love for God or ask for forgiveness or, or demonstrate atonement. So we, we want to offer, he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. So it's a sacrifice, but it's a living one. It's, it's like the Old Testament animals. They've been set aside and they're offered as a holy and pleasing offering to God. But it's not the same kind of thing because this doesn't involve like the thing set aside actually dying. We are living sacrifices. The animals in typical sacrifices die. Thankfully, in our case, humans do not. <laughs> That's not what Paul's saying. 
He's not talking about some sort of a, you know, go, go get yourself killed, go choose martyrdom. No, he's saying that's a living sacrifice in your actual life. Offer yourself. And then he says, this is your true and proper worship. I love the new translations. Old translations used to get this wrong. This is your spiritual act of worship is the translation I grew up with. No, it doesn't say, I don't know why anybody ever translated spiritual. It, it means that literally the word in the Greek is logical, logical. This is your true and proper, this is, the, this is worship that makes sense for you. So since you're a human and not an animal, the type of worship that makes sense for you is to offer the parts of yourself as a living sacrifice. Since God has saved you, this is what makes sense. So I'm thinking probably getting the point, I know I'm saying the same thing a lot because I want to make sure we lock into this foundation. So you consecrate yourselves as an act of worship. We're talking about obedience, but we're seeing it as worship. And then he builds out on this a little bit by saying, you know, and, and you do this conforming not to the world, but being changed by renewal of the mind. So in other words, don't look like them. Don't be like a little kid. You know how little kids, like if, if um, they get a little older, it doesn't work anymore, but when they're, when, they're, when they're really little, like just maybe two, three, if you want them to do something, like you want them to drink something or eat something, they don't want to do it, what do you do? You just take a drink yourself. This works with both of my kids. Take a drink of water. No. All right, fine, I'll drink your water. I want to drink a water. You know, it works every time because they're kids. And I mean, they're awesome and lovely, but they're kind of dumb. You know what I mean? Their minds don't work real well yet. Paul says, don't be kind of dumb. Don't. Don't be the kind of person that just looks around and says, well, I mean, I, like I said, let's take the scenarios we were talking about before. You know, this, this person in my office or this person in my school or this person who, wherever, needs a little help. This person on my street needs a little assistance. I have the time, but nobody else is helping them. To be honest, I don't really want to either. You're, Paul says, you're not like everybody else. So don't conform to the pattern of this age. You're, not, you're, not, you're supposed to be different. Like you're, you're, you, because you think different, you're supposed to live different. Like there should be some obvious differences to you. That was God's purpose all along for his people, that they would be a holy nation, set apart, living differently, so that the outside world could look in and say, there's something going on there, like there's something real there, there's something there that I want, and so Paul here is saying, well, that's how it should be with you, don't look like everybody else, but instead, be transformed, be changed by the renewing of your mind, again, it's in the thought processes that this begins, and then it turns into action, then Paul says, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So God will teach you how to know his will. A couple things I want to mention here. Um, you should hear Paul saying, like, God, through the Spirit in Christ, will teach you, as opposed to you simply learning by reading the law. Hear that. Paul's saying, God, through Christ, in the Spirit, will teach you, as opposed to you going reading the Old Testament. Like, the Old Testament is still valuable, he'll say, but we actually, can't, we have a living teacher who, who is teaching us. We will come to know this as we apply our mind to the gospel. As you apply your mind to the gospel, you develop a better ability to discern God's will. And I also want you to hear, like in constant reliance on God as your teacher and guide. God is not interested in giving you the perfect list of rules. Because as soon as you have the perfect list of rules, guess who's in control again? You know what I mean? And we get ourselves right back to the same part we were before. Now, it's not that God wants you to always be a dependent little baby. He wants you to be a mature, like, like I think God wants a relationship with us like that of, 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 of a mature and healthy adult parent-child relationship. Except in this case, there still is this deep, constant, abiding dependence. We depend on God. He's not going to tell us the answers ahead of time because we'd use them to beat people over the head. We'd become legalists all over again. And if we had the answers, if we had the list of all the things to do exactly tied up, then we would start to worship the list instead of listening to God. God wants us to be able to discern the moment. 
And he'll teach us to do so as we allow our minds to be renewed by focusing on the truths of the gospel. So Paul says, again, big picture here. He says, um, considering God's mercies in view of all that God has done, consecrate yourselves as an act of worship. Do the right thing as an act of worship. Conforming not to the world, but being changed by renewal of the mind. That is Paul's version of love the Lord your God for your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what he's saying. So the love God piece is there, and it's the foundation for what comes before. In the next major section, we're going to talk about loving people, and we're going to speed up a little bit, obviously. We can't spend that long on every couple of verses. But because I want to make sure we lock in these first few, let me pause and see in any, any uh, for the moment, clarifying questions about these first couple of verses in Romans 12. Okay, let's keep going then. We're going to look at um, Romans 12, or yeah, Romans 12, starting in verse 3, and we're going to make our way um, all the way through the end of 13. So the first, uh, the first line in there, I can't remember what I blanked out or if I blanked out anything, but the first line in there is the church's life together is, about, is above all a life of love. That's what we're talking about. And that actually extends all the way to the end of chapter 15. So what Paul is essentially saying is, here's what it looks like to be this people. And you'll see the word love sprinkled in key places throughout this. So above all, this is a life of love. What we're going to look at today is Paul's instructions on love towards those on the inside, that is those who are believers, then love towards those on the outside, that is those who are outside the church. So we're going to look at love toward those on the inside, and we're going to see how he breaks this down. We love one another by exercising our gifts, first of all, by loving deeply and thoroughly, second of all. That's essentially what he says. Then I think he turns his attention to loving those on the outside. He talks about loving those who attack you, loving those who govern you. And then he'll wrap it up with some summary statements at the end. So let's read this first section, um, loving, uh, love toward those on the inside, uh, verses 3 through 13, and specifically by exercising your gifts. Chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. I'm going to read what Paul said, I'll make a few comments, and um, I will be in these sections relatively brief, and I invite you as always, if there's a point that you're a little interested in and would like some further insight on, feel free to ask. Uh, Verse 3, for by the grace God given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. We probably all, I have that verse underlined, you probably should too. In accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, are one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And that's big language, at least important language. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with the faith, should say the faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it, is to, if it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So simply put, Paul says, you love one another. How do you do that, Paul? Do what you're good at. Exercise your gifts. So let's look at what he says here. First of all, verse uh, three, think rightly about yourself. It's humility over pride. Always humility over pride. So again, discipleship begins in the mind. It begins by having a right view of yourself. Now, I realize that for many of you, the problem is not that you have a high view of yourself. The problem is that you have a low view of yourself. This verse is specifically toward those of us who maybe have a high view of ourselves. Paul says, if you, think, if you tend to think of yourself as kind of really special and important, well, like all of you are special and important, but you're not more than others. So <clears throat> don't. 
Don't think about yourself as being all that fancy. And I think there's a general temptation to pride. And there also can be with the exercise of our spiritual gifts. Paul never, notice what I love about Paul. Paul never actually says all the gifts are equal because to do so, I think, would actually acknowledge that we should compare them in that way. He doesn't even ever say that. He just says, I don't care if they're equal or not. Point is, you can't have one without the other. Like, like in order for this to work, all the parts got to be there. So don't think that your gift is so special. So that's what he starts. Think about yourself in a certain way. So think rightly about yourself. Humility over pride. And he says, think rightly about the church. It's about the body over the parts. It's the whole that matters and the different parts serve this. So we don't come to this saying, all right, I want to get, I want to get what I want. Like I'm coming to church for, for what's in it for me. No, like, of course you should come to get built up and to get fueled and to get fed. All those things are fine. But this idea that like I pick a church because of what it does for me, not entirely, not even primarily. Paul says, think about the body and how you can contribute. So the basic metaphor is the church as a body. He uses this metaphor in a couple other places. He uses it in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4. Here, just look at the statements again. Each member belongs to all the others. Man, that is big. That is big statement right there. Then we have different gifts according to the grace given us. Paul can't even think about the gifts without remembering that God gave them. And I actually think, I'm still, still trying to think about exactly how best to communicate this, but I kind of think it's not so much like, let's say this is the gift of mercy. It's not so much like, here, I have a gift for you. Enjoy it. It's, here, I have this gift for you to give to everybody else. You follow what I'm saying? So, like, it's not just a gift for you. It's a gift for the community through you, I think is how we should think about this. All of us need each other. All of us need each other. And that means when any of us aren't playing our part, then the church is suffering. And we are never to compare our gifts because that is not the point of this. We don't compare. We recognize it's about us. What's the main point? Again, not even that you need each other, but you are part of each other. So not just that you need each other, you are. We are part of each other. That's the extent to which we should feel affinity towards one another. And I know we're a big church, and I know you can't know everybody. And then if you're like me, and even like if you're even slightly introverted, the idea of trying to know closely everybody here is just exhausting. You know what I mean? So you can't. That's okay. But even those we don't know, we should have an affection for. Like when you go to, I don't know if I should use this as an example. Maybe you hate family reunions. You know where I was going, huh? Like when you go to a family reunion, except imagine it's awesome. And you really love everybody there, even those you don't know, you know? That's kind of the idea here. So um, Paul says, you know, you're part of each other. Then the basic gist of it is do what you do and do it well. That's the point here. Do what you do and do it well. This is not an exhaustive list. You can compare this to the other lists, and they're all different, which tells us that I don't think any one list is designed to give us the final, here are the spiritual gifts. I don't think it works like that. I don't think you have to find something on this list. It's not the point. I don't even think it's you have to find something on, you know, any of the lists per se. If your gift is, I'm really good at, you know, telling the story to the children in children's church, or I'm really good at, honestly, I just really like holding the little tiny babies and praying for them while we rock. I don't find that in there. You don't need to. Like, you just listen to the Spirit. If that's what you're good at, then do it. That's the point of there being differences in these gifts. If you have the urge to do something and you're good at it, then do it. That's the idea. Again, the big picture being God makes people good at what is needed for the church to do her job. He gives us these gifts of grace and he gives us faith to exercise them so that we can each do our part. So do what you do. And I think he also says, and do it well. 
If you prophesy, prophesy in accordance with the faith. I think the idea here is, if you've got a word from the Lord, awesome, say it, as long as it lines up with what the Bible teaches. That's what I think he's saying. If your gift is to, is to give, then give generously. If your gift is to lead, lead diligently. If your gift is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Some of y'all love visiting, or some of you are really good at visiting people in the hospital. Um, it's, it's, some of it's, it's funny, it's even hard for me to imagine like loving that, because I, I, don't, I don't not like doing that. It's just hard, you know what I mean? That's not really how I'm wired. I'm happy to do it when it's needed, but man, there are some people who are just good at that. We have a couple in this room, actually, who are just good at that. And we would not be who we are without them exercising that gift. No way, no way. So you get the point. God makes his people good at what is needed for the church to do her job. So figure out what, I mean, mean, honestly, if you don't know, start somewhere. Get in and give it a go. If it doesn't work, okay, go somewhere else. And again, don't just think, well, we don't need to give a lot of caveats. You get the point. So we, do, we love one another, first of all, by exercising our gifts, and secondly, by loving deeply and thoroughly. Let me read verses 9 through 13. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. So literally, the, um, the, the, the way this passage starts is love, genuine. It's like not even a real sentence. And our best guess is that Paul actually is like, imagine a heading. So it's like, you know, to do. And then you start writing the item. So love, the genuine kind. And then he lists out these various things. And I actually have the literal translations there for you because it's not even separate sentences. It's love. The genuine kind, love, like the for real kind, sincere kind, hating what is evil, clinging to what is good, being devoted to one another and brotherly love, honoring each other above yourselves, and so on and so forth. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a minute, and I think there are, let's see, one, two, three, uh, four, five, six, seven, eight different bullets. Is that right? Or do you have a little less than that? So there are some, the the different lines in there, and I'll give you some space. I want you to take a minute, and in the space provided, pick three or four of them and write the opposite. You know what I mean? So like, don't paraphrase it. I want you to write the opposite. Sometimes as we think about what we're being called to in the text, it's helpful to say, well, what would be the contrast to this? So uh, you can be as creative as you like. So take a minute, look through that list and write out what it would look like if we said the exact opposite of these things.
There we go. Let me grab your attention, and uh, I want to hear what some of you came up with. Um, certainly, feel free to use, uh, you know, feel to do the rest of them later if you didn't get to finish. How many of you did something with hating what is evil, clinging to what is good? All right, let me hear. And if you put, if, if, you, if it was me, I would put clinging to what is evil, hating what is good. So if you put that, mean you're the same, but we'll, we'll look for a few that are maybe a little bit more creative than us. So how many of you, what'd you put over here? Did you put what I would have put? Hating love, okay, yeah, all right, good. What else you got here for the opposite of this one? Any others? Oh, yes, ma'am. Fun to be mean, boring to be perfect, okay. Other things, yeah. What else? One more. Loving what is evil, disposing of what is good. What's another one? Embracing evil, okay. So what about the next one? Being devoted to one another in brotherly love. What's the opposite of that? Hating your brother and neighbor, yeah. Bring to one vote to another in conditional love. All right, yes, ma'am. Do for yourself only. Do for yourself only. Yeah, yeah. Let's just take let's just take all this devotedness to others off the table. Yeah. What else? Any other opposites to this one? Yeah. Always be hateful. Okay. Um, honoring each other above yourselves. I'm number one. Okay. What else? Yes. It's all about me. And then behind her? Okay, all right. Serge, you have one? Being selfish, okay. Yeah, all right. Let's look at the rest of it. Being fervent in spirit with no lack in diligence. What'd you put there? Being lazy and mindless. Yeah, enough said. All right. <laughs> serving the Lord. What'd you put there? How many of you put serving yourself? Serving no one. Yeah, a lot of people put that. All right, what about being joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer? Does anybody have one that has the three in order but their opposites? Being an atheist, okay. Again, cut right to it. Yeah, what'd you put, sir? Be depressed, impatient, and unbelieving. Okay, yeah, a bleak outlook. Yeah, what else? Yes, ma'am. Constantly complain, Yeah. Um, and then just a couple more. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Keeping everything for myself. Keeping everything for myself. Yeah, pretty, pretty, self, pretty straightforward on that one, huh? And then practicing hospitality. Didn't you guys like, I don't want to say colorful. That would be too far and we'd have to fill up the jar. <laughs> like in this one, I actually, I just think like, well, I'd slam my door in people's faces, you know? When anybody else got anything for practicing hospitality, what would be the opposite of this in, in your language? Just rude. Yeah, just be rude. Just be rude to people. Yeah, okay. So if you look at the opposite of this, and again, it helps you get a picture of the positive. I also encourage you later on um, to finish the exercise by going back now, and we, won't, we don't have time to do this tonight, but this is what I encourage you to do. This is, if you want a homework assignment for your own devotional time, here you go. Um, paraphrase. Now go back to the actual words of the text and paraphrase it. So say what it says in your own words. And be as specific as you want. The only rule is you can't use the words in the text. So you just come up with your own way of saying this. And you speak. Put it in your language. Imagine like you're writing your own paraphrase of this passage. And, uh, and think about your daily life and, and put it together in that way. They could be beneficial for us. So what I love about this list is, you know, our culture says, you know, it's, it's all about love. And Paul says, well, I mean, the answer is not no, but what do you mean? You know? The answer is not no, but let's give a little bit of definition to that. And he gives quite a bit of definition to that. And what he's doing is, again, not so much saying, here's a new list of rules, but let me paint a picture for you 
excuse me, of the kind of person that you can become, of the kind of community that you can be. I'm going to throw this vision up on the wall and you can see it and you can go get it. So these are the things to do. So Paul says, again, big picture, love those inside the church. Love one another. How? By exercising your gifts and by just doing it in very real, down-to-earth, practical ways. So those are the two halves of Paul's instructions to us toward one another. He'll come back to our internal life in the next later chapters, but right now that's the big picture. Exercise your gifts and show people sincere love in whatever ways are appropriate to the moment. Then in this next section, we talk about love toward those on the outside. This section is a little bit longer, and I will say there's some debate about how exactly to frame and outline this portion of the text. I do obviously agree with what I'm saying to you. I wouldn't be saying it to you. I think we do now turn, and we're talking about those on the outside. That may only be generally true, but I think it's a pretty good frame for this text. So let's read through the whole of what it says. First of all, taking it in halves. First of all, uh, loving those who attack you. Chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. Loving those who are antagonistic to you in some way. Uh, That's kind of the theme top to bottom. Um, There are some different points in between that we'll see. Here's what he says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So I think Paul, it's, it's what he's saying there, you can apply to those inside the church as well. But I think specifically here he has in mind the relationship of these first century Christians in Rome towards those who were outside their walls, towards those who maybe didn't think too highly of them. We can never know for sure what's down the, the, what's down the road for us. We may end up in a situation where we face all sorts of difficulties. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a person. Okay. Oh, yeah. Sure. Sure, yeah. So the question to summarize that, I don't want to oversimplify, but you know, this is a person who's just in your life and just kind of mean and nasty and has done some hurtful things. And someone who, who isn't, I'm getting the sense we're not talking about a person who just totally I can ignore. It's a person, or at least in the past, they're part of my life. They've hurt me. And then I forgave them, but sometimes I wake up and I find myself angry again. I absolutely think forgiveness is an ongoing process, no question. Um, I don't think it's a one-time thing. I think there's kind of a final decision you make. I forgive you and will forgive you. You know what I mean? 
100%. I think that just meets the, the normal realities of life. And, you know, no, no, I... Sure. Well, let me, let me give you a, a concrete example from my own life, not to be too dramatic, but I was three years old when my father left. My son is about to turn three. I fully expect in the next year I will have to. I'm fine. I mean, I have no, I remember no bitterness towards the man. Um, he made a foolish decision. You know, he wasn't, wasn't, wasn't following the Lord, all these things. I'm, I, I, I've placed that in, I put that in its place. But there are times in my life when I experienced the, the negative consequences of his decision. And, um, I mean, it hasn't happened in a while, but there are times when I might have to once again choose to forgive. I, I anticipate that happening. When I look at my son on the exact day that matches up to the day when he left, I think it will once again be hard for me to fathom how one could do that. And I don't mean to, again, I don't, so yes, we forgive con- continually. Uh, yes, in the back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, let's see. So I think the idea here is, uh, you know, whenever we are, it's, it's, if, if I'm right that he's specifically thinking about outsiders, um, there may, I'm trying to think of an example. So if I, if it is offensive to someone for me to, let's say I work in a, in a, in an office space with, you know, cubicles, and I want to blast my worship music. And there's somebody in the cubicle next to me that just finds that really bothersome. I think Paul's saying in this case, put some headphones on, man. You know? Don't, you know, sure, it's wonderful, you love your Jesus music, whatever. Um, but but it, it's becoming offensive to this person. And it's not like God commanded, you know, me to play this music at this volume. So I'm not disobeying by turning the music off or putting some headphones on. Um, I think that's kind of the spirit of what Paul is saying. As you go about the process, if there are people who have a problem with what you do, and in the end, it's not gonna, you're not going to disobey God by changing it, then change it, you know? Let's say, um, I don't know, <laughs> let's say I don't like to mow my lawn. I actually do like to mow my lawn, but let's say I don't. And I have some neighbors, uh, again, really anybody, but in this, in this sense, specifically non-believing neighbors, who they take their lawns very seriously. It's a big deal to them. And they would like to come home and for their neighbor to take his lawn very seriously. I think it's kind of my you know, responsibility as a Jesus follower, as a Christian, to do what I can, to do, you know, this is the do, as far as you can, do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Take good care of your lawn, man, you know, for the sake of this person who wants that. So I think that, again, that's the spirit of what he's saying. So just walking through briefly some of these, bless those who persecute you, bless you not curse. Not hard to understand what he's saying. These are, Mark Twain once said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do. That's what I think about with this text. You don't need me to give you a whole lot of explanation of what he's saying. What he's saying, uh, some of them you do, actually, the one you did, you do. Bless those who persecute you, I guess I kind of get what you mean. Don't really want to, but I guess I kind of get it. So that one kind of speaks for itself. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Again, could be a general thing, true. I think um, if we are talking about outside world, um, you know, when, when, uh, when your neighbors are celebrating the Cardinals' victory, even if you don't care, celebrate Cardinals' victory, whatever. You know, if Joplin, if Web City, don't hate me, I, I'm sure I will care. It's not really all that personally important to me yet. How our football team does. You know what I mean? 
But when we lost, like, I'm not going to, you know, when I see the coaches be like, hey, hey, buddy, well, that was fun, you know, whatever. It's just, oh, man, sorry. You know, that's, I think, kind of what he's saying. So um, he's working against what can happen in the church. We can have this kind of Christian snootiness. We come to faith. We get our life all cleaned up. We do need to separate for a time from our past influences. And, but then there can be almost this sense of, uh, now I'm going to look down on everything you do. No, like that's, that, even if we're saying, that, you know, yeah, like what you do is wrong. Like if you're sad, I'm not going to just sit over here and go, well, if you would come to the Lord, this wouldn't happen to you. No, like now is not the time for that. Now's the time to just cry along with. So um, I'm addressing you because you asked this previous question. That's funny. You've kind of become the person I'm looking at back there. So, um, so rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Thinking the same toward one another, not thinking pridefully. So again, don't be willing to associate with anyone. Easy to understand, not the most fun thing to do. If you think you're above someone, stop thinking like that. <laughs> you're not. Not in the kingdom anyway. That's not how we think anymore. Not repaying anyone evil, evil for evil, but be caring, be caref- being careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And even specifically, the word here for being careful to do what is right is, uh, I won't give you the Greek word because why, but it's thinking beforehand. Thinking beforehand is literally what he's saying here. Give deliberate thought ahead of time to how you can do, do right by people. So if I'm picturing my day, I'm waking up in the morning, I'm taking a shower, I'm, you know, maybe I'm just thinking about nothing, but, you know, at a certain point, maybe in the shower, on the way to work, I think, all right. Maybe it's when I sit down at my desk and I look at my calendar. Here's my meetings today. All right, I'm going to think about how I can be a positive presence in the lives of the people that I'm going to engage today, that I'm going to interact with. That's kind of the idea here. Living as far as it depends on you, at peace with everyone. And then he gets to, to the big heavy stuff. Not taking revenge, my dear friends, but leaving room for God's wrath. For the third time, Paul talks about not retaliating in kind. Somebody snaps at you, don't snap back. Don't. Don't snap back. That's what Paul says. If they snap at you, respond with kindness. It ain't easy. But Paul says, not taking revenge. It is, and then this comes back to the forgiveness piece. It's not on me to take revenge. I've not been asked. God will do the right thing by by. By Dan Mainprice, by the man who left when I was three, you know? Um, that's it, it's in God's hands. And I'm not even, I'm not even got, asking God to bust him. And it's not even that big of a thing. There are certain things that have done, been done to you in this room. Uh, it's not wrong for you to want God to bust people. Now, in the end, we want, him to show, want them to accept the grace that he's offered them as well. But I want God to, I mean, I, I'm glad God is just, it, you know? When I think about some of the things going on in the world, I'm glad it's not just, eh, no big, you're in. It's all good. It's not all good. It's not all good. And we can choose to not take revenge because God is just, because God will do the right thing. So we don't take revenge, but we leave room for God's own wrath. It's not on us to take it into our hands. I love daredevil, but I don't think vigilante justice is the way we're supposed to go, right? It's not how it works, I think he's saying. Instead, we give place to wrath. We, we let it go. So then for it's written, we quote from Proverbs in Deuteronomy 32, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. That comes from Deuteronomy. On the contrary, quoting from Proverbs, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. He's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning coals on his head. I don't think this is like, and you'll get him in the end. <laughs> I think it comes from, um, I don't know. There, there, I haven't traced out the literature yet. I've heard that there was an ancient practice in some cultures, specifically I think Egypt, um, which when you think about the Proverbs, it kind of makes sense a little bit, where like as an act of shame or penitence, you would kind of like walk around with this, you know, thing on your head that had burning coals on it. You're not burning your scalp, but it was just like a, a public way of being shamed for what you've done wrong. The idea here is, wherever it comes from, I think the idea, here, the idea is if somebody snaps at you and you respond with kindness, not like, 
get you back kindness, but genuine kindness, then they're probably going to say, hmm. And they go back to their office, hmm. Or maybe like a month later, I probably should stop being mean to this person. Like, it's not really working. They just keep being kind to me back. That's what he's talking about here, I think. And you can ashamed, you know, people, you can cause people to be ashamed of their own behavior. And then he gives the summary verse, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There is evil in the world, but God's people are to fight it the same way he did, with a generous, ridiculous, nonsensical, self-sacrificial love. Don't fall into that same cycle of vengeance and violence, and you got me, so I'm going to get you. And just, No, Paul says, step out of the cycle. Step out of the cycle. Overcome it. Rise above it. This is not what we're called to. This is not how we operate. So in, in reference to those who are against us, Paul gives us all sorts of things to do. And then he kind of focuses in a little bit in this next section, a fairly famous section um, in, in Romans 13, 1 through 7, those who govern you. Let me read it and then I'll just make a couple comments about it. He says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be, af- excuse me, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They're God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. A couple things, just big picture. A lot we could probably get into. A couple points. First of all, we are called to submit to governments out of obedience to the highest authority. It's kind of the, the duh of this passage. Uh, it is a general principle. Uh, the Bible does talk elsewhere. This is not everything the Bible wants to say about governance. Um, if you want to write some parallel passages, let me give you two. Acts chapter 5, Peter and John specifically tell the authorities, we're not going to do what you say, because what you're telling us to do is the opposite of what God's telling us to do. And when that happens, guess who wins? God, every time. Another parallel is Revelation 13. When a government gets too big for its britches, it becomes beastly, it becomes an agent of Satan. This happens with empires, it happens with all of them. Eventually, you sort of outgrow yourself and think, oh, I'm here because of our own power. Forget that there's somebody above you. And it, it, it just ain't good for you. Paul's thinking is, is rooted in the prophets. This Paul, Paul is, is trained to think like this by his own Bible. Think about how the prophets would say, yeah, God's going to use Assyria <clears throat> to come and punish his people, but then they're going to get a little too, you know, a little too high and mighty, so God's going to use Babylon to come and like, punish them. God is the one, Isaiah 40, another key passage. Yeah, you know what? You need to meditate on a, if you, and, and I get it, I get it. Like, it's a weird year. It's a weird election. I'm not going to get into details, it's just weird. If you are worried, and you probably have cause to be worried. If you are worried, you're allowed to worry. We're not allowed to panic. Uh, Psalm 42, Isaiah 40, meditate on these texts. The nations are like a drop in the bucket. God is not, cons- I mean, he's, he cares, but he's not concerned. He's the highest authority. 
He's, he's been around for a while. He's seen these things. Everything's going to be okay. In the long run, we are going to be okay. Like, we believe in God of resurrection, so what's going to happen? So, um, again, we have cause for concern. I'm not saying that, but, but we can keep it in context. So we submit, not because of Rome's glory. Think about how they would have heard this. Everybody submitted Rome because Rome was awesome. The glory of Rome, you know, like the arm handshake. We've seen Gladiator. <laughs> we think we know about Rome. Um, the glory of Rome, peace of Rome, big deal. Paul says, no, not because of that. Because of God's glory, because of God's might, because of the glory of God's kingdom. He's chosen to use tiny empires to run his world, and right now he's using Rome. Rome would have laughed at Paul, but Paul doesn't care because Paul's laughing at you. Not you, them. Laughing at Rome. So Paul says, submit to the governing authorities. And let me say, secondly, we must remember the times and note where Paul places the emphasis. I, didn't, I don't think I realized the importance of this uh, when I first studied this passage. Taxes. That's where he goes with a specific example. Don't miss that. I think it's relevant. Um, now, I'm not denying that Paul reveals some universal truths about God and government here. I think he does. But, um, but I think given the historical context and the immediate turn of his attention to taxation, I think we should probably see that this is at least one of the main things in Paul's mind. Now, remember, uh, it's been a while since we talked about it, but, let, but remember, it is A.D. 57 right now when Paul is writing this letter. Um, eight years ago in A.D. 49, Claudius, the emperor, expelled all of the Jews. That includes non-Christian Jews and Christian Jews. Expelled them for a lot of reasons. Expelled them for rioting. Expelled them to, um, to some to rioting, actually, probably because of Jesus. So he said, I'm, I'm going to kick you all out. And the tension that was occurring on the ground, um, in part, had to do with taxation. Um, how do you tax these people? Should we pay the tax? If we, belong, if we believe in God, should we give you our money? All these things. And so Claudius expels the Jews. Then five years later, Nero takes the throne. He hasn't gone crazy yet. He takes the throne and he invites them back. That's the context for Romans. These Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians trying to figure out a way to get along together. Trying to figure out a way to make this work and be one community. And in this, in this context, think about this context. Jews are suspect with regard to taxes in the eyes of Rome. Rome didn't like the Jews. And in particular, there was a lot of tension that had to do with taxes. When the Jews rebelled against the pagan empire, it usually started by having something to do with the coins. When uh, in AD 66, the rebels seized control of the temple and started a riot that led to a four-year war with Rome, guess what the first thing they did is? They went into the temple and they burned the tax records. So tax, big deal. And Rome, Jew, tension. Now, I don't want to assume too much, but if you're a Gentile Christian and you're not a big fan of these Jews hanging around, these Jewish Christians are making it difficult for you because you liked life when everybody just looked the same. You know, we could all eat the same meat and nobody had a problem with it. Bunch of vegetarians, you know, it's just what the heck. You know that if you cause tax problems, there's a chance they're going to experience the brunt of this. And again, I don't want to overread. I don't want to assume more than we can, but it may be that there was a unity issue. It may be that some of the Gentiles were tempted to kind of be a little ornery or worse. And at the very least, one of the tangible ways that they could demonstrate selflessness for their Jewish brothers and sisters was to shut up and pay their taxes. Stop raising a fuss. Even if they're raising a fuss for other reasons, Paul's like, listen, it's going to come back down on them. So just pay your taxes. So uh, again, don't over over assume, but I also want to read it in context. And big picture, what Paul says here is fairly clear. 
Submit yourself to the governing authorities because God designed in this era of history, he is is using um, uh, actual governments in order to run his world and therefore we should submit to them generally and specifically with regard to taxes. Uh, Let me see here, let me do a time check. We're doing okay time-wise. I skipped over some details. Um, I don't need to go back if you don't want me to, but before we go through this last section, let me pause for a second and ask any questions about the latter part of chapter 12 or the first part of chapter 13 that we've looked at together so far. Okay. <laughs> okay. I don't know if you heard him, but he started with, I'm going to put you on the spot. So, okay. Well, what did we talk about? Um, right now, a real hot issue uh, is like the refugees and stuff. Okay. And uh, from a compassionate Christian standpoint, yeah, I understand. Yeah. said we talk about that in Romans <laughs> so the question is about refugees um, yeah, you just I yeah probably um, <laughs> let me think it is a tricky one it's a very tricky one so a couple of things to think about are remember our first you said you know our enemies our first hour our first we is the church we are first of all Christians Secondly, Americans. This, I think, was important. This came home for me as a young as a college student in, uh, when, when 9-11 happened. For, when we say, what are we going to do? As Christians, the first thing, what are we going to do? Or what we mean first by that is how should we respond as followers of Jesus? And then it's appropriate to say, now, how should we respond as Americans, specifically those with you know, decision-making positions? So with regard to the refugee issue, um, you know, the, one, of, one of the things that complicates it is uh, what does it mean for us as Christians in relationship to what it means for America as a sovereign nation? Um, I think what I'm going to do, um, are, you, are you sure I said something about Romans on this question? So there's an article, I wonder how, how we could find, there's an article, there's a magazine called First Things. It's a Catholic, Catholic magazine, but it's a really good magazine. Um, it's not like a bunch of specifically, here's why the Pope is awesome, here's why the Pope is awesome. It's much broader than that. But there was an article I read on there, um, and I mean, not that the Pope's lame, but you know. He's um, cool. I like Benedict, too. Um, anyway. <clears throat> I'm filtering through all of the jokes. So, uh, there's an article in First Things on... Um, the refugee crisis, the refugee question, the open border question. And uh, it, was, it was a very enlightening piece. I'll try to find it. In, I don't know, a lot, a, lot of a lot of y'all aren't necessarily on like Twitter or something. But I'll try to remember maybe to bring a link to it next week. All I can say is there's two fundamental schools of thought. Both are potentially legitimate from a Christian standpoint. I don't think the gospel answers this question for us per se. I think we should have a stance of openness I would probably, if I were trying to argue for open borders, I would probably argue not only on the basis of the gospel, but if I were trying to appeal to Americans at large, I mean, the, 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 the history of our nation is I mean, we were all immigrants at one point. You know what I mean? There's something to be said for that. However, if I were trying to build a case on the opposite end, there's a reason why we have laws. There's a reason why we have sovereign nations. 
And so it's not just as simple as we should be compassionate, open up the borders. I'm not gonna be able to speak with much, with much value to the question. Um, uh, and if I can think about what I, why I said Romans, then maybe, maybe I was thinking of chapter 14 and 15, and maybe it's one of those issues that we're just going to agree to disagree on. You know, and Paul says of, of various things in, that, in those chapters, you know, if one person thinks a certain day is sacred, awesome. Let him, let him devote that day to the Lord. If another person thinks all the days are same, great. Let him devote all the days to the Lord. The point is not this or that. The point is, is it devoted to the Lord? So I would say for you as a, as a believer, if you believe in more of an open border type mentality, okay, think it through from a gospel standpoint. And, you know, and, you know, hold your conviction in light of your confession of Jesus' lordship. If you believe in a closed uh, border policy or more, more something of that nature, okay, root that in your understanding of the way God works and of the gospel and the way God operates in nations and those things. So we'll probably have to save any other conversation for it for later on. But uh, I promise to try to give you something at some point. Yes? No, it's very true. Not all the refugees. I mean, there's literally so many issues. It's not that I don't want to talk about this, but we are not going to talk about this anymore simply because there are so many issues. We just, we just can't unpack them all in this period of time. So wonderful question. And true. Potentially. And here's what I'm saying. We're not even going to open up the can. So a different thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was not a dry eye in yeah. the nursing home, and it felt, made me feel good. It ministered to me. Yeah. They mourned with yes. me. Yes. And that, that's very important. It is. It is, man. And I'll, me through this it will. It will. It absolutely will. And what did Jesus do when he when he came to Bethany? His friend was and his friend was dead. He wept, mm-hmm. and um. And some of us, some of you, you know, some of us are more wired to cry than others, and that's perfectly fine. There are certain types of pain; it's kind of hard not to cry. Um, and I mean, there's been a lot of tragedy in 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 and connected to our church body recently. There's been a lot of mourning going on, and our job is to mourn with those who mourn, whether they're inside or outside the faith. You know, it will minister to you absolutely. Yeah, yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. As far as Yeah, so uh, a very well-worded question that I'm not going to be able to reproduce re, re in, in all of its detail, but the question of what, what obeying laws, when the laws take away religious freedoms, are we just supposed to obey it because that's called laws, or you know, when are we supposed to say no to the government? The simple answer is, if the government commands you or me to do something that God is to, like opposite of what God commands, then we don't do it. If If the government commands me to... Uh, I hate going to the extremes, but at the end of the day, if the government, you know, let's say the government commands me to go shoot an innocent person. Sorry, the answer is no. You know what I mean? Um, let's say the government demands that, you know, that I, I, I'm not a doctor, so, I mean, the abortion issue is, I think, a, a critical issue. Um, let's, say, let's say I am a doctor and the, and the government demands that I do this. 
Like, no offense, but screw you. You know what I mean? And I say that in a sanctified way, I hope. I'm not doing it. Um, so if, if it's not a disobedience issue, that's where it becomes, you know, difficult. Uh, so I think that we operate within the laws as best we can, and we only break the laws intentionally when it is very directly against a command of God. That's the simple answer. If we wanted to have a lot of fun, and I didn't care about not answering any of the questions I raised, we would talk about whether the American Revolution is acceptable in light of Romans 13. You know what I mean? I mean, it's an interesting, I don't even want to talk about that, but I did raise it, I guess, so I am a little ornery. It's a fascinating question. You know, at what point does government become illegitimate? Is this about America and Britain? Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. 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 Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, it's yeah. So about revenge and, you know, a little boy get beat up by bullies, is there different, are there different laws and principles for young people and adults? You know, I, has, I, I am, I am a, I, my son is, is fresh, he's little. And so I think I'll be able to speak to this a little more wisdom on the other side. I want to acknowledge my own, in, you know, my own inexperience in this and be careful to presume to tell those who are further along, you know, in these things. Um, I will... Um, I believe I will, I will teach my son to love his enemies. I think sometimes, and I mean this, sometimes it actually is a loving thing to knock somebody out cold. Let me give an obvious example. If I'm drowning, I mean this, like I'm drowning. And like, I'm, I'm like hanging on you. Probably going to happen if we're in the water together because I can't swim. I'm from the ghetto. I can't swim to save my life, you know. I mean this, like, I mean, I can kind of stay up, whatever, but I'm just not good in the water. It's like, poof, energy gone. So like, you're going you're gonna to have to knock me out. You know, and it's actually a loving thing to do. Similarly, we talked about this in my class today. If somebody comes into my classroom with the intent to harm, I hope we do everything short of taking his life. It raises another issue that we're also not going to talk about today. But at the very least, I hope we do anything short of taking his life as loving. If I throw a desk at the dude and knock him out cold, if I break his legs, if I, you know, if I, I get damage his face, like anything short of killing him, it's not only loving to those in the room, it is also loving to him because I'm keeping him from, from committing a, a grave sin that will have consequences on his own character. You know what I'm saying? So in that sense, I mean, we're not there yet. It's not like we have to have these conversations. But when I think about how to teach my son to act when somebody's messing with him or when somebody's messing with his sister or when somebody's messing with smaller kids. There may be, I'm, I, may, I may land with the idea that actually it would be loving for him to go and, and, and not in a weird, like be prideful sort of way, but the bully really does need to learn a lesson in that situation. So the take, don't take revenge would mean I don't get to go to his house, find his dad, you know what I mean? Or whatever. Not like, what am I going to do? You know, hey, oh, you're bigger than me. But you hurt my boy. I don't care how skinny I am. You know what I mean? I mean if, it would be a temptation for me. Come on, big man. Let's roll. You know, if you're cool with your little homies taking, taking my little homie down, I'm, I'm going to show you. Like, I know I'm getting old. Got a little gray in here or whatever, but I still got some speed. So I'll kick you and run and kick you when you catch up. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> I don't know. But that's what I think is ruled out to then go back and get back at him. You know what I mean? But in that situation, 
Um, I mean, that's just, a, that's just a crappy situation. I'll put a quarter in there, I promise. It's just, it just is, you know? So um, ultimately, I hope my kids fast. Oh, sure. Well, and to be clear, to be clear I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. This is what I'm, yeah, you know, you, you got to be careful for litigation purposes. And yeah, you never know where it could escalate to. But this part of what Paul is saying is step out of the cycle of revenge as hard as it is. And it's hard. I mean, it cost God his own son, you know. It cost God the life of his son. He allowed, he allowed the people he was saving to be saved by murdering his son. That's crazy. That's a depth of love that I won't pretend to understand. May, I, don't, I mean, I, maybe I'll start to get it in eternity. Maybe it's going to take a couple, couple millennia, I think, to get the depth of that love. So let me go ahead for the sake of time and, uh, and draw our attention back to uh, the big picture of or the last couple of comments here. So 8 through 10 and 11 through 14, this won't take long. The, the heading over all of this is, as we love one another well, we actually become living proof of God's righteousness. This is where I think Paul comes back and says, oh, and by the way, when you do this, when you love one another by exercising your gifts and by loving sincerely, and when you love those on the outside in all of these concrete ways that I mentioned, and also uh, in submitting yourself to the governing authorities, here's what you're doing. Verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. If you didn't think that's what we're talking about, here it is. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Did you see that? That's big for Paul. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. He said in chapter 2 that there will be Gentiles who don't have the law by nature, but do the law, do the things the law requires. I told you he was talking about Christians. He said in chapter 8 that we've been set free from the spirit of life, by the spirit of life, so that, and then now that the righteous requirement of the law singular is met in us this is what he was talking about when we love one another we fulfill the law the commandments you shall not commit adultery you shall not murder you shall not steal you shall not covet and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command love your neighbor as yourself love does no harm to your neighbor therefore love fulfills the law the point of this text is clear if you love one another you're doing what the law requires the placement is weird for a long time this text perplexed me like why this here what is this passage doing here? So what if, what if the text were not here? You wouldn't lose any content. This doesn't add anything in terms of how we go about loving. I think what we would lose is the deeper significance of our love for one another inside and outside the church. And the deeper significance is that the church living in love confirms the righteousness of God. When we live this way, we live out the law. And when we live out the law, we show that God did do what he said he was going to do, create a community of people who abide by the law. When you love one another in concrete ways, you become a living demonstration that God keeps his promises. You become a living demonstration that God was faithful to Israel, that God was faithful to his, his purpose in creating Adam right there from the very start. So the church living in love confirms the righteousness of God. This is the last reference to the law in the letter. And he's saying these in Christ people, these Christians are the ones who fulfill it. And then the last bit, 11 through 14, uh, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, Rather, close yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ 
and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. I think Paul's saying God's mission has reached its initial goal, and it's still moving forward. Don't underestimate how our view of the times affects our daily decisions. Don't. Um, a lot of us are a little more on edge this year than we were two years ago because it's, it's, our times are kind of unstable. Think about the, the um, rhetorical value in some circles of not being on the wrong side of history, various controversial issues. That's thrown around, and it's used to tell us, well, you have to think like this, or you're going to be on the wrong side of history. Interesting. Okay, so you're saying think about the times and act accordingly. Paul says think about the times and act accordingly. His clock tells a different time, though. Night has given way to day. We live in a new time. Not a time defined by who's in the White House, but by who's on the throne of heaven. We live in between the victory of Christ and the full accomplishing of that victory, in between D-Day and V-Day, so to speak. So we understand our times. Night has become day, and this actually becomes a call for us. Therefore, live in the light. Live in the day. Notice Paul goes after the good people and the bad people. He goes after the good sins and the bad sins. He's talking on the one hand about carousing and drunkenness, sexual immorality and debauchery. These are big things. And then he's talking about dissension and jealousy. Well, dang, those are my sins. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it's the good people and the bad people who are called to count here. And by good and bad, you know what I mean. Like the, what we think of when we think of bad and what we don't think of but should when we think of bad. And then Paul ends where he began. He began this passage by uh, calling us to obedience using the imagery of sacrifice. Uh, he said to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleased to God. This is your sensible worship as a living animal, as a person, as a human. Here he ends with a call to obedience using the metaphor of clothing. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I think he uses this metaphor because we put on clothes every day, at least most of us do. <laughs> so he takes a daily habit and says, let that become a symbol for you of every time you put on a fresh shirt in the morning, put on, you're putting on Jesus. Every time you put on some pants, put on the Holy Spirit. And so he uses this as if to say, in the same way that you wear clothes, wear Christ, wear Jesus. This is that famous passage that converted Augustine 1,600 years ago, and it serves as a similar call to us today. So uh, it is um, pretty much time to go. So let me say a prayer for us. And, uh, and I want to say a practical prayer for us, and then we'll get on out of here. <clears throat> Father God, thanks again for tonight. Uh, thanks for, oh, my voice hold up. I think we just made it. <laughs> thanks for um, just the eagerness to learn that you've placed in our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that of all the many different things we talked about tonight, as we drive home, you would um, call to our attention the specific thing you want us to do in response. Not to earn your favor, but to express the grace you've given us. So if it's something tonight, help us to do it tonight. If it's something tomorrow, help us to do it tomorrow. If it has to do with a neighbor, coworker, family member, whatever, Lord, just help us to hear and see the one action step you want us to take. And then after that, give us one more, one more, and one more. Help us to be faithful to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.